Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and you are listening to Keeping the Faith. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Keeping the Faith is brought to you without ads or commercial interruption of any kind, except for this one invitation. I have friends who are inspired by what they hear from Keeping the Faith, and those friends support my work. But you can support this podcast as well by buying me a coffee. Buy Me a Coffee is a tiny little link where you can throw a few bucks into my tip jar and keep me busy behind the counter serving up the best episodes I have to offer. Simply go to buymeacoffee.com slash McBrayer, and you can easily and securely donate to the cause. You can also go to my website, RonnieMcBrayer.org, and click on Podcast. You will find several ways to lend a hand, and you can also choose your favorite listening platform, be it Apple, Podbean, or Spotify, so that you will never miss a single life-changing, day-making, death-defying episode. Thank you for being a regular listener. Tell you a story about a terrible cold night. And a priest heard a knock at the church door. And he was in his parsonage, very warm and tucked in, but he wrapped himself in a great coat and drug himself away and went to the, the door of the chapel, the door of the sanctuary to open it up. And when he opened the door, standing right there before him, there in the blowing snow was a poorly dressed beggar, shivering of course. And the beggar asked, he said, may I take shelter in your sanctuary tonight? Well, the priest began to explain how the sanctuary furnaces were not running, not during the night. They only ran during Mass. He wasn't sure if it would be much warmer inside the church than outside. Still, the beggar implored him, at least it will get me out of the wind and and out of the snow. I'll die out here tonight without shelter. So the priest reluctantly let him in, then returned to his private quarters, for his warm fireplace. But before turning in, the priest thought he would look in on his sanctuary guest. And he entered the sanctuary, and to his alarm, the beggar had built himself his own fire. Right there on the floor of the sanctuary, right at the altar. And worse still, the beggar had taken the wooden crucifix off the wall and used it to fuel his fire. Well, the priest was outraged. Have you lost your mind? His voice boomed across the church. Do you know what you have done? That is a sacred icon. You have burned Jesus. And quickly he ran to get a pail of water to put out this unholy fire. When he returned, the beggar was poking around in the fire with a stick. And the priest said, what are you doing now? Just before he tossed the water on it all. And the beggar, who was a sweet, simple man, looked up at the priest as if he were a child, and he answered, I'm looking for the bones of this Jesus fella 
whom you say I have burned. Well, that was the last straw. He dumped the water on the fire, threw the ignorant beggar out, and set about cleaning up the awful mess left behind. A few weeks later, the priest told this story to his bishop. The priest was still as angry as he was the night that the beggar had desecrated his sanctuary and burned the crucifix. And the bishop thought about the story for a minute and then answered very carefully. He said to the priest, I'm not sure you're cut out for the priesthood. And the priest was aghast. What, what are you talking about? I did what was right. I was protecting the holy church. And the bishop, as gentle as he could, answered like this. No, you valued a dead stick of wood over a living man. You thought more of a human-made image than a made-in-God's-image human. That's a powerful story. And it's more than a story. It's a fairly accurate accounting of how religion often works. And it really doesn't matter what religion it is. All faiths are susceptible to this major system failure, for lack of a better term. In our effort to keep safe what we deem sacred or holy or non-negotiable, which is a worthy effort at times, we draw these hard lines and we create sharp edges that end up damaging and hurting people, that throw people out instead of let people in. The bishop's diagnosis is correct. We value dead sticks over living people. And those sticks can be formed into the shape of statues or buildings or books that make up our doctrines. We think more of and invest more energy into the images, ideas, and theologies that we have made than those who have been made in God's image. This temptation to forsake the elemental is always with us. To forsake the essential for what is ultimately amounting to the trivial. It's just baked into the cake. It's how it is. It's one of the many flies in the ointment of being a human. We build something initially with the best and highest ambitions for the sake of serving others. But over time we dig in to defend it, to protect it, the it being the thing of our creation, and we lose our grip on that original ambition of loving service. What would be healing becomes tribal. Protectionism. This is a perpetual temptation, a trap we lay for ourselves, a trap we have been tangled up in since the first people thought they had God figured out, or at least tried to figure God out. It's present today, present yesterday, it'll be present tomorrow, it was present in the time of Jesus. I've returned today to the Revised Common Lectionary. Last week, it was the book of Psalms, and I invited you to listen to God's voice in the world around you. The heavens are telling the glory of God, that text proclaimed. Each day speaks, every day, every night declares knowledge. There are not words, of course, but it is still a voice that is speaking if we have ears to hear. It is creation that speaks. Creation sings. It whispers. Sometimes it shouts, pointing us to what William James called the wondrous more behind it all. 
And today's theme is about speaking and listening as well. It is about hearing the good news, good news for all. And it is about a specific voice calling to us, the voice of Christ, the voice of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's where we find Jesus today, in Nazareth, in his hometown. He's, he's come home for the first time in some years, best that we can tell. He's been down south in the desert with the Essenes, most likely, a group of pious desert dwellers. And he's certainly been with John the Baptist, that firebrand cousin of his. And he arrives on a day when the text being read is from the prophet Isaiah. Jesus didn't pick this text arbitrarily. It was picked for him because it was in the lectionary that day. It was the custom to follow a lectionary. That is, the scripture reading for the day was already chosen, not just for the Nazareth synagogue, but all the synagogues. Each of the authors from the Hebrew scriptures had their own scroll at a synagogue. There were no books. Books would not be born or created for five more centuries in China. Technology wouldn't allow it until then. And the scroll of Isaiah was massive for context. A copy, a complete copy of the scroll of Isaiah was found at Qumran, one of those Essene communities among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it is dated almost perfectly to the time of Jesus. And this one scroll of one book in the Old Testament is three feet tall. And it is 24 feet long. Longer than this stage. It is 17 sheets of sheepskin sewn together. And these things were so cumbersome that they had a special storage place in the synagogue and they had a special attendant who was in charge of finding the right text for the right day because that was a task to unroll that thing and find the right spot. If not, the reader would never find the appropriate reading, not without 45 minutes of looking. There was no, would you please turn to page X in your Bible? That did not exist. Jesus knows all of this when he arrives, suspecting probably that coming home out of respect, he would be asked to read. It's the reason he shows up on this particular Sabbath, and he shows up to make trouble. The troublemaker Jesus. And he just doesn't read. He takes over. Verse 20 in our text says, he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. Now that's subtle in the English. It is explosive in the original. He rolled up the scroll and handed it back to the attendant. <laughs> he took the special spot for the day, rolled it up, handed it back to the attendant as if to say, that's enough reading for now. Because they were never going to find it before the service ended back where it was. And it says he sat down. In ancient Judaism, the rabbi, the teacher, sat down to teach. And it looks like Jesus was asked to come read, but not give the sermon. He rolls it up, hands it to the attendant. The attendant saying, what in the world is going on? And Jesus takes the attendant's seat. Jesus takes over the pulpit. No wonder 
they look at him so intently. I just love this scene. The son of the carpenter. The young man who used to be the nerdy little boy running all over town asking questions. That kid with the controversial origins whose, mothers it, whose mother it was rumored had cheated on Joseph by all apparent understandings. This one who had the harebrained idea of chasing John the Baptist down into the desert a hundred miles away. Now he has taken over the service. And little old ladies start clutching their pearls and saying, Oh, day God, what's going to happen now? And they're fanning themselves with their kerchiefs. And the old men cross their arms and furrow their brows. And they say to themselves, these millennials are going to ruin this world. Or something like that. The teachers and the preachers in the crowd, they pull out their pencils to take notes so they can refute Jesus' sermon later. The chairman of the board of the Nazareth synagogue breaks into a sweat. And the seat cushion underneath him tightens because he has no idea what's about to happen. And you can feel the tension. And then Jesus says it. The scripture you've heard today has been fulfilled. And when Jesus says that, he's pulling all the decorations off the wall. He is setting fire to their holy sticks. He is making hamburger of their sacred cows. And everybody knows it. And the crowd is filled with rage. Often when I have spoken from this text, I've pointed out that the rage is aimed at Jesus, and and that is correct. Just who does he think he is, is sort of the idea. Taking this messianic job description from the prophet onto himself, he ran off to the desert and came back all high and mighty. And that's true. That probably is their perception. But what strikes me about my reading of the text this time and this week is the rage directed at Jesus applying the words of Isaiah to them. Someone shows up and claims to be God's representative. That usually gets you laughed at, not killed. Today, it might even get you a following. It might even get you a TV show on Daystar or a Learjet. But rarely would people want to kill you. But tell people... That the way they have been living, people you grew up with, people like you, that their way of life is wrong. Tell them that they are a part of the problem in the world and standing in the way of God's justice and beloved community coming to pass. Tell them that they are keeping the poor poor. Tell them that they are the reason why captives are held. Why the oppressed are trapped and the blind can't see. Tell them that all their line drawing and door locking doesn't please God. Instead it breaks God's heart. Tell them that they have grown so hard hearted and so hard of hearing. That God has moved on past them. To break down all barriers and bring in all the ones they have rejected. Because at least they are the ones eager to receive God's grace. You tell them all of that. And brothers and sisters... The good church folks will be looking to kill you then. Or at least run you out of town. And this is exactly what Jesus did. You see, and hear me this morning. They loved all this talk 
about good news for the poor. They were all speaking well of him, even if he had been unconventional in his takeover of the service. They were still impressed. They loved Jesus preaching about releasing the captives and setting the oppressed free and God's good favor coming to them so long as it was them. Tell me how I got it right, which is so often what people want to hear in a church or from their religion. Tell me how I am right and reinforce my already established conclusions. Oh, how God loves me and me. And they could just wallow around in the glorious mud of that all day. But when Jesus starts talking about foreigners and outsiders and oddballs and all these people who have spent We have spent our lifetimes being suspicious of, if not outright hating, getting the same good treatment that we get. Well, you're burning crucifixes now. And the good news suddenly doesn't sound all that good. There is this story of a frog who fell down a well. I think I've told it before. I love it. And it was okay. The frog could swim, of course. And There in the well, he found another frog who had called this well home for his entire life. And the well frog, meeting this new visitor, was curious at first and asked him where he came from. And the visiting frog said, oh, I was just traveling through, but I come from the sea. That's where I live. Hmm. The well-drilling frog said, the sea? What is that? What is it like? Is it as big as my well? And the visiting frog chuckled and he said, oh, my friend, there's no comparison. The sea is as big and wide as the world. It's deep and blue and great waves run across its surface and crash onto the shore. It carries massive boats and vessels. It is filled with all kinds of life and fish and creatures and beauty. The sun rises on one side of the sea and it sets on the other. And on and on he told the story of his homeland. And the frog who had lived in the well for his entire life, he feigned interest. He, he pretended to be curious about what his visitor was saying, but he had already made up his mind. And he said this to himself, of all the liars I have ever met in this world, this guy is undoubtedly the worst of the bunch. He is absolutely shamed. And I know you get it. Where that frog lived within the confined, safe, well-established walls of that well, it kept him safe, it kept him protected, it kept him insulated, it kept him right, but it also kept him ignorant and uninterested, even hostile towards someone who came from a different place. And to think that this someone different actually enjoys a broader perspective, actually has a brighter and better view, actually enjoys more growth, more grace, well, there ain't no way that could be possible. Friends, we are not the only ones who have received or who will receive the love and grace of God. This power, and I'll have more to say about it next week, 
to set captives free, to elevate the downtrodden, to break the chains of our poverty. We do not have a monopoly on those things. We don't even own those things. They don't belong to us. So while we hammer out our doctrinal perfections and craft our holy trinkets and draw our hard lines and sharp edges and polish some sacred icon, we have to hear the voice of the beggar at the door. We have to. We must come to understand that those words in the gospel that say all and whosoever will are intentional. It means all and whosoever will. God's welcome will extend to the very ones whom we are certain do not belong. To the very ones we have kept on the outside. To the very ones that offend our sensibilities and tread all over our sacred ground. God cares more about people made in God's image than the image we are trying to maintain. God cares more for those who are in need than our need to feel right or in control or to be assured that our particular religion or interpretation is the correct one. And God will reach people with love. God will transform and change people. And when God changes them, that does not mean God makes them look like us. Or believe everything that we believe. It means that God is shaping people into the image of Jesus, which is God's intent for all of us. And just look at this Jesus. Defying religion, defying his own people, friends, family, for the sake of the poor and the forgotten and the sick and the blind and for all of those standing on the outside in the cold. It should not make us feel lower because someone else gets uplifted. It should not make us feel left in the dark because someone else sees the light. It should not make us feel marginalized because someone else finds a home in God. It should not offend our religion because someone we never anticipated has discovered grace. It should bring us to a place of gratitude and praise that God's glory will indeed fill this earth as the waters cover the sea. You have been listening to Keeping the Faith, the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be. At Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at ronniemcbrayer.org, and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. Thanks to Shutterstock Incorporated, located in New York City's Empire State Building, no less. For producing and licensing my theme music, Bobby Rains provides recording and technical expertise. Tim Riles created the Keeping the Faith logo and artwork. And Land Sunshine on My Shoulder Pro is credited with any and all photography. And as always, Toby and Moe, the two small wonder dogs that run my home, assisted with all editing. I'm Ronnie McBrayer. This has been Keeping the Faith, and I thank you for listening.